and we're talking today about Charles Darwin. On the Origin of Species by Darwin is arguably the most important and influential single book in the history of science. Here to talk to us today about the life and influence of Darwin is Simon Dedeo, external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute and professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thanks so much, Mary Charlotte. This whole idea of evolution and natural selection in the book on the origin of species represents a huge creative leap in human thinking. It was enormously influential, not only on science, but society itself. What was that leap? What did the world look like before Darwin and the theories of evolution and natural selection? (laughs) In many ways, what Darwin did was put together a puzzle that had been sitting sort of on the floor for maybe even a hundred years beforehand. What Darwin was able to do was to see how the very longest time scales of the history of the earth could be put together with a story about the origin of the variety that we see in the natural world. At the point in time when Darwin was writing, nobody at least in the scientific community and in the general intellectual public, nobody believed that God had made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. But there was a huge resistance, a huge inability to imagine that it all had come from an unintelligent process, that the species had emerged in the world in a way that to us would have seemed the product of random variation. You were talking about time scale, and one of the things that's so interesting about Darwin is the connection between the observation of geology and the observation of biological life. Absolutely. And in fact, one of Darwin's major influences was uh, the geologist Lyell. Lyell was one of the first people to describe the origin of geological features, the origins of mountains and rivers, islands and even continents, in a way that didn't make reference to a divine plan. Lyle was one of the first people to propose the idea that in this incredibly long span that we were beginning to realize the Earth had existed in, that the variation, the structure we see, the mountains that we see, the deserts, the landscapes that we see, that those had been produced by a process of gradual, mostly random, and incredibly gradual variation. It's possible to imagine something not changing for a very long time. And I think that's the image that people had before Lyle, that there were these eras. And so occasionally something major would happen. Some event, divinely ordained, would come in and do something and make a mountain. What was stunning about what Lyle was asking his readers to do was to imagine these incredibly long timescales, centuries, millennia going by, and very tiny effects happening day by day, inch by inch, slowly raising mountains up. It's the difference between looking at a painting and watching a film in incredible slow motion. And so then Darwin... And you can see sometimes in places like when he was on his great world voyage, Mm -hmm. there are moments where he could see those layers of rock Mm -hmm. that represented time. Mm -hmm. So was his great insight 
I mean, okay, so we understand this about geology, that this also applies to life, like that kind of gradual change over time? Exactly. I think maybe Lyle would be a great example of somebody who went halfway, who left the idea of a six-day creation myth long behind, but could not get all the way to the point where Darwin ended up. And in particular, Lyle could imagine this gradual process of geological change, but he absolutely refused, at least at that time, he absolutely refused to believe that it could apply to living species. There's this big question, and that is, what was Darwin's process? It was a scientific process of discovery. It was a creative process. Did he have goals for his life work? Did he see there's something missing or there's something wrong that he needed to correct? What did that look like? If you asked someone to point out who would write the greatest scientific work of the 19th century and perhaps the greatest scientific work of the last thousand years, Darwin would be the last person you would pick. Darwin was a man who enjoyed life in his youth. He wanted to be outdoors. He wanted to see the world as it was. He loved observing what was around him. Certainly, that's part of Darwin's early encounter with the natural world. And it's an encounter that begins in just a love of seeing, love of shooting, <laughs> a love of riding horses, a love of running with dogs. So. In terms of the image we have of the scientist as a very serious young man, certainly Darwin doesn't fit that picture at all. It's perhaps when he begins medical school in 1817. When he's up there, he's training to be a doctor. He's trying to buckle down and do something with his life. And when he gets to Edinburgh, he realizes that he just can't do it. He can't be a doctor. The lectures, when they're not horrifying, they're incredibly dull. And so when he's there, he gets his first taste of the beginning of what is going to be a scientific revolution in the United Kingdom, which is the shift from what we would call today natural theology, the idea that one does science in order to discover the workings of God and everything, to something today that we would see as modern science, the idea that your job as a scientist is to come up with explanations for phenomena that you see, not to show how the phenomena you see somehow ratify a divine plan or speak to the glory of God. And then at a certain point, he goes on this five-year-long voyage, which was really the basis of the rest of his life's work. Is that right? Exactly. And again, Darwin is picked for this voyage. He's joining the captain. This is a naval expedition, essentially. The voyage of the Beagle, of the HMS Beagle, had a s large number of not quite incompatible goals. In many ways, it's somewhat like the voyage of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> they're not quite sure what they're doing. They're probably exploring. They have a couple things on the list, but as the captain makes his voyage, for example, he's able to extend it additional years as he decides that there's more things that he wants to do. And so he's essentially making decisions on the basis of what he thinks is a good idea. And that basis includes the study of the natural world. So what does Darwin do? What happens when he's on this ship, the Beagle? Darwin falls in love with the natural world. 
when he goes on this voyage, what strikes him again and again and what shows up in his journals and then what shows up indeed in The Origin of the Species, his great work, is the incredible diversity of the natural world. Darwin is somebody who can take it all in. He can see what he later would come to call the tangled bank, right? On the side of a river, there is the roots of a tree. There are the worms, there are the fish, there are the birds that eat the worms. There's the moss, there's the lichens. There's so many things happening, even in the smallest patch of land. And Darwin is being thrown into a series of environments that even today have no equal for their biological diversity. So then after that five-year voyage on the Beagle, Darwin goes back to England. He becomes a respected scientist. He's trying to understand what he's seeing, this change in species over time. He's observing the natural world. He's reading and writing. And at a certain point, something happened and his work changed. Yes. And in fact, what's remarkable is that we know exactly what happened, which is that Darwin, at this point, has been putting together a theory of gradual change of species characteristics over time. He has all of the pieces that he needs. What he doesn't have is the evidence. In 1844, a book comes out. It's called Vestiges of Creation. Vestiges of Creation is the book that Darwin would have written. And it comes out and Darwin is mortified, but he's not mortified because Chalmers got the jump on him. He's mortified because he realizes, thank God I didn't write that book. Chalmers's book has all of the concepts, but none of the evidence. So when Darwin sees Vestiges of Creation come out in 1844, as a scientist, he's disgusted. As an author, he's humbled because he realizes, well, if I had sat down to put this all together, maybe I wouldn't have made errors as bad as, as Chalmers did, but I don't have all the pieces that I need. This moment when Darwin sees, in some sense, an image, like the ghost of Christmas future, he changes entirely his plan. Darwin wants to do it right, and what he realizes is that if he's going to do it right, if he's going to put together his theory, he needs more science. In fact, he needs, in some ways, to become the man that he was during his voyage on the Beagle. He's no longer the vigorous young man who can just go out on another voyage and get it. And so what he does is he turns inward. And he begins a long series of studies, in particular, on the barnacle which is this little shellfish that sticks on the side of rocks and on the underside of boats. And he spends the next 10 years of his life, not just on barnacles, but barnacles dominate his research at this point. And he's got a lot of barnacles. He's got a lot of, I mean, he has a room where he sits and he does this work, very painstaking work, with the goal of understanding, can he see evidence for natural selection? Can he see the heritage? He believes at this point that you know every, every creature had to have come from a previous version of itself. And so what he's doing is he's looking for the morphological characteristics of the, within the barnacle that will lend evidence to the book that he's going to write, the book that is going to do what Vestiges wanted to do, but to do it right. What did Vestiges want to do? What did he want to do? It's impossible to talk about what we call today the theory of evolution without talking about its religious implications and its political implications. 
And so when Vestiges of Creation came out, you might say it was a left-wing sensation. Even though the science was a total disaster, Vestiges was saying things that many people wanted to be true. It was saying that there was no divine plan in the biological world, that what we saw in the world around us could be attributed to natural chance and to change, that it was possible for things that appeared to be so fixed for them to actually have changed, to have emerged from something that was very different from what came before. The hawk is a hawk not because God ordained it to be a hawk, but because that hawk emerged developed, changed out of something very different. And so if you're in the 19th century, you're looking at the emergence of modern capitalism, you're looking at the immiseration of the working class, you're looking at the struggles to make, say, the United Kingdom a true democracy. If Vestiges of Creation comes out and says, you know what, like nothing in the natural world is ordained by plan. The king is not king because God ordained him to be king. Instead, in fact, it's all changeable. It's all mutable. Things can progress. This is exciting stuff. So people want that to be true because they want progress, because they're tired of monarchy, because the working classes want to not suffer the way they're suffering. I mean, these things are all connected. Exactly. So if you think the plan of the species was laid down by God, then there are natural predators and natural prey. If instead who becomes a predator and who becomes prey, if those things are actually the outcome of random gradual events, something that nobody directed and certainly not an all-powerful being directed, if that's the case, well, then everything's up for grabs. And of course, this is all metaphor, right? Whether or not God created the animals really has no bearing on whether you know the slave should be free. But as we all do, we draw our beliefs together. We draw them into a continuous net. And so by challenging the idea that God had laid down a plan for creation, the author Chambers, the author of The Vestiges, was also part of a movement that was challenging the idea that those on top deserved to be on top. If you thought that God had laid out a plan for the species that in some sense was finished, you were likely to think that God had laid out a plan for the organization of society, and that was also finished. If you thought that species could change, then you also might think that parliament could change. So when Vestiges of Creation is being written, it's incredibly controversial. Everybody's angry. The science is bad. The politics today, most of us would agree the politics are actually pretty good. Like maybe, you know, you should pay members of parliament a salary so that you could be a member of parliament without actually being independently wealthy. The controversy was intense and none of this suited Darwin at all. Because in the end, he was a genial, not quite a trustafarian. He was somebody who liked the world the way it appeared to him. And his really, his one true goal in life, other than his passion for his wife and his children, his one true goal in life was to do science. He also had a real aversion to slavery, a kind of disgust for slavery, and an openness to all kinds of people. And one of the things that advanced his work was he was talking to people who were farming and breeding pigeons and not just other intellectuals and scientists. And through that, he advanced his work. So his good nature and his very open-minded nature seems to be part of not only his personality, but his, his thinking. Absolutely. Darwin 
in many ways encapsulates what you might call a form of scientific liberalism. One of the few conflicts that arose on Darwin's voyage on the Beagle with Captain Fitzroy was, in fact, over slavery. Fitzroy was a man of the old school. He was a Tory. He was right-wing. Fitzroy also passionately believed that slavery was a natural form of social organization, something ordained by the very nature of the people who were enslaved. Darwin believed the exact opposite. And in fact, Darwin almost got himself thrown off the voyage of the Beagle. They were in Brazil, and Fitzroy and Darwin were, you know, doing what I guess gentlemen adventurers did back in the days, which was having dinner at the most important house in the town that they were visiting. In fact, it was one of the big slave estates there at the time. And they began to talk about slavery, and the their host said, oh, slavery is, is a natural thing. And in fact, watch this. And so he calls all of his household slaves into the room and says, uh, would you all prefer to remain slaves? And of course, they, they all say yes. And they're traveling back to the ship that evening, and Fitzroy says, well, you know, see, look, it's, it's obvious. And Darwin points out the obvious fact that they lied. And Fitzroy explodes with indignation and the takes a long time for them to patch up their quarrel he has a very egalitarian attitude towards the origin of scientific information and so at the same time that he's a member of the athenaeum this very prestigious gentleman's club in new york he's also getting information from pigeon fanciers from horse breeders from what today we would call the people most familiar with animal husbandry because of course we see variation in, in animal species all around us. We see that apples go from golden delicious to Fiji. We see that dogs take on all different shapes and sizes. Everybody saw this at the time. Darwin was wondering, and in the origin of the species, he makes the claim that that variation can go beyond the species boundary. And in order to gather that information, he has to do what for many Victorians certainly of his social class, would have been somewhat unthinkable, which is to get that information from ordinary working men, not people with degrees from uh, prestigious universities. These breeders are doing what Darwin called artificial selection, the way you breed dogs for, say, their hunting ability or their size or whatever. And Darwin was the first one to make the distinction between artificial selection and natural selection. We know what breeders are selecting for, but out in nature, what is natural selection selecting for? This is the great puzzle of evolution. And Darwin actually got into a lot of trouble because when he wrote Origin of Species, he tended to personify natural selection. He tended to say, nature, this being, is picking one thing over another. That's what's leading to the variation that we see in species. Over the course of his life, Darwin regretted saying it that way, and he came to settle upon a phrase, the survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest isn't much better, and the reason it isn't much better is, well, what's fit? The survival of the fittest means the survival of those who are most likely to survive. And so for much of the career, the early career of evolution, people struggled with how to understand selection. We know what it means when a farmer selects a sheep to have good wool. He has a set of goals in mind. But how do we understand what it means to say a species has been selected when there's no goal for that selection? Well, and there's no selector. And there's no selector. What Darwin is really fascinated by is diversity. 
what strikes him about the natural world is not today we'd say not how well adapted it is what struck darwin was how many different kinds of things there were that there were not just worms but there were also lichens there were not just lichens but there were also fish there were not just fish but there were also crabs Darwin spends a lot of his time trying to figure out how the process that he has some kind of handle on, not how it's going to make a totally awesome animal, not how it's going to make the best animal, not how it's going to make the sort of fittest animal even. For Darwin, it's the question of how do we get so many animals to begin with? There's a lovely analogy that some writers have made in Darwin's work. They've pointed out that at the same time that Darwin was building his theory of evolution, the Victorian world that he lived in was seeing an explosion, not of biological diversity, but of technological diversity. This was the first explosion of new tools, new machines, new devices that nobody had ever seen before. So Darwin is building a theory. He's trying to explain the diversity he sees in the biological world. What he's surrounded by, funnily enough, is an explosion of cultural and technological diversity as well. How was On the Origin of Species received when it came out? Received by scientists, the public, the church? It was going to be a bombshell, whatever happened. Darwin was aware of the vestiges of creation scandal, so his evidence was solid. And in fact, many of the early reviewers said, you know, we could have done with a little less biology, Mr. Darwin. Two things he skipped. He did not talk about the very origin of life. So in one sense, Origin of Species is the book that never does what its title promises to do. He talked only about the creation of new species from ones that came before. He never really talked about what was the sort of origin moment. And the other thing he didn't do, and this is another attempt, I think, to dodge the theological challenges that he was going to get, was that he didn't really talk about the origin of man. But at the same time, the ideas that Darwin had now given credibility to, those ideas were in the air. And so very quickly people were asking, well, you know, Mr. Darwin, are you descended from a monkey on your grandfather's side or your grandmother's side? All of the people that you would expect would like the book, the people who saw a biological theory of evolution as supporting their own desires for social progress, they loved it. Remarkably, a large number of the clergy, well, certainly more than you would expect, liked the book. Religion itself had changed in the last few decades. Priests, the clergy, were now more willing to accept the idea that maybe God's job was, you know, create the universe. Not sure I care about that. Really, God was going to be more important because of the personal relationship that he had to you. We were seeing this transformation of religion to a model where it was much more about self-improvement, much more about self-help, much more about being a good person, and much more about, and this is a phrase that will sound familiar to Americans, the personal relationship you might have with your Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, in fact, that actually made them more able to accept Darwin's theory of evolution, because if it wasn't that important who created the species, then well, here's this beautiful book. It's extremely well argued. He doesn't tell you that people are not divine because Darwin doesn't really touch on that. Although, again, 
read between the lines. He doesn't tell you anything that's going to harm someone's own self-image. And so more clergy than would be expected actually either defended Darwin's book or at least refused to condemn it. That said, there were many people who were very strongly invested in a model of the world where everything about them bore the traces of God's power. And those people began the attack almost immediately. And that attack is still going on. The attack is still going on. It's Darwin himself worried a great deal about what the, his theory would do for people's emotional lives and for their moral lives. One of the things that he worried a great deal about was the effect that it had on his wife, Emma. And in fact, Emma was a religious woman. And she asked him whether or not this theory meant that they would not be reunited in heaven together. That was something that Darwin took seriously, not in his capacity as a scientist, but certainly in his capacity to understand the human mind, to understand that the stories that we tell ourselves are not just explanations of the natural world, but also situate us in a meaning-making process. The simpler way to say it is, when we look at the Sandia Mountains during a sunrise, we feel emotions that are profoundly unscientific. When we think about somebody we love, when we think about an animal we love, when we think about creatures that a scientist would say are just simply blind products of evolution, we don't feel that way, and we probably shouldn't. Do you feel that these unscientific emotions, as you put it, that we feel when, when we, for example, look at a landscape, are themselves a product of evolution? <laughs> in Darwin's writings, and in fact, he, he wrote on this many years after The Origin of Species, he says that the emotions that you have, the expressions on your face, and famously he, he, his last book was The Expression of Emotions in Man and the Animals. He denied that any of these had origins outside of the evolutionary process, that the love that you felt, the smile that you saw on someone else's face, that these were genetically linked to the grins that a monkey makes. Darwin was adamant that there was no spiritual quality super added to mankind. Now, whether or not that makes the emotion you feel in the presence of natural beauty or human beauty, whether that makes that emotion less or more is really up to you. You could see it in, I would say, two very different ways. Certainly the way many people saw it was to say that Darwin has diminished us, that the spiritual feeling that I have upon seeing, I mean, the landscapes we certainly have here in the American Southwest, that spiritual feeling, Darwin says, it's no more than a squawking bird. But another way to look at it, and this is a way I do feel it myself, is the experiences I have in those situations become even greater now. Because instead of being some sort of fluctuation in my own mind, it's now a fluctuation that's connected to five billion years of biological and natural evolution going all the way back into the sponges. And to me, that's amazing that I'm not only connected to this landscape by being in this landscape, but that the very experiences I have are as majestic as the landscape itself. No one thinks a mountain 
is smaller because there's no blueprint for it. No one thinks a mountain requires a designer to be the mountain that it is, and I don't think that my emotions require the same designer to have or to deserve the respect they get and to have the meaning that they do. Simon Dedeo is an external faculty member at the Santa Fe Institute. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Thank you so much, Mary Charlotte.